Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Parshat Emor can be divided into two sections. The first portion teaches a series of laws regarding the high priest, regular priest, and unacceptable sacrifices. These limitations remind us how distinct a class these religious figures are meant to be. They cannot have any significant deformity or broken limb if they are to bring a sacrifice in the temple and many other stipulations of this sort. The second portion of the Parsha, which we will be focusing on today, is what is commonly known as Parsha Tamoadim, which takes us on a sweeping tour of the Jewish holiday cycle. It begins with Shabbat and then moves through Pesach, Omer harvest, counting the Omer and Shavuot, the mitzvah of Pe'ah and Leket, intended to leave parts and products of the field over for the poor, Yom Tru'ah, or what we commonly call Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then Chag Sukkot. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Michael Eisenberg, businessman, venture capitalist, and author. Michael is a graduate of Yeshiva Taratzion, and since 2016 has published several Torah-themed explorations, including a book on the Talmud Yerushalmi, Masechet Brachot, The Vanishing Jew, A Wake-Up Call from the Book of Esther, which looks at Megillat Esther from the perspective of economic philosophy and the struggle for money, power, and control, and most relevant for our conversation today is Etzachayiva Kesef, or in English, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis. He has another book called Kol Echad Moshe Rabenu, which is about leadership and economic principles in the 21st century, and Shevet Shoeg, which is another book of explorations on the Parsha about the Book of Vayikra. He has a forthcoming book in Hebrew on Bamidbar called Chalav Dvash Ve'ivadaut. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Yosefa. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. You know, I see here, just from the sort of biographical information, that you've had this tremendous creativity spurt, it seems, in the past seven years. And I'm curious how that has evolved for you. I didn't sit down to write books. That wasn't my intention. I, I had conversations with my children at the Shabbat table about relevant current events and different ways of looking at Parshat Shavua. And I started to take notes after Shabbat. I wrote things down that I had said we had discussed. And over time, I accumulated notes on every parasha uh, of different kinds, by the way, and sometimes different variations and, and variants on themes. So I guess now seven or eight years ago, I decided to collect them and put them into WhatsApp missives. And the WhatsApp group grew. People seemed to be interested. And then a few people called me and said, you really ought to turn this into a safer, into a book. And so I sat down to write one. At the same time, I had this book on Migilata Stare burning in me already for like 17, 18 years, and it was the easiest one to write. Uh, I've been reading the Migilata since I'm 13, and I basically know it by heart, so it was easiest to write. And so I sat down and wrote that one, see how it would be accepted. It ended up uh, being on the bestseller list in Israel for Sifreyun, which I guess they call serious books. And I said, <laughs> maybe people are interested in this. 
And uh, then I sat down to write on Breshit, and in the middle I wrote the book on Yerushalmi for my father's 70th birthday. That's why it's called Ben Baruch, that's his name. So it just kind of culminated, and, and I'll add one other thing. I think we are at a point in Israeli history that calls on us to ask, what does a uniquely Israeli economy look like? What does a uniquely Israeli democracy look like? What does a uniquely Israeli civic square look like? And since Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, and certainly since Israel has found its footing post Yom Kippur War, I would argue that all important innovation in Torah and Jewish thought has come out of Israel, particularly since the Rav from Soloveitchik passed away. And so we have a tremendous responsibility to our children and grandchildren, not only to articulate why we need a homeland to flee from anti-Semitism, but what does this Jewish homeland infused with Torah and Jewish content mean about real life and the real issues of the day? And my argument is that the Torah and our Masoret, our tradition, has something to say, fundamental, about the economy, about the civic square, about democracy, uh, and about how we become a purveyor of those timeless principles in, in real life. And strikingly, we spend most of our day working, not sleeping and not home with our kids, and for most people at least, not learning Torah. Mm-hmm. And so the Torah must inform those things. You know, what, some of what you're saying also reminds me, a few weeks ago at this point, we, I sat down with Nechama Goldman Barish and we spoke about uh, Leon Cass's explorations of the Parsha. And what I love about what you're doing is that um, not only is it adding a perspective that you're saying is a central perspective in the way we function, we're functioning with our economic lens and through our working life on a daily basis, but your work is also coming from a distinctly religious place, meaning it's work that is relevant for the general audience. And I think that it's very clear when you read all of your all of your works that you're able to relate to them on all different levels. But I'll just say between us and for the people listening to this podcast, that there's something very moving also that it's coming. You're bringing in an economic perspective, and it's also infused with the religious perspective that you come with naturally. What's been interesting to me, particularly since The Tree of Life and Prosperity was published in English, is... We're also at a moment in history where people are questioning assumptions broadly. We're questioning the capitalist model in the United States. We're questioning the role of religion, particularly as America and Europe have become more secular. We're questioning the breakdown of community. Uh, Young people are questioning fundamental assumptions about having children. Uh, There's a lot of talk of climate like the world's coming to an end, doomsayers. And what I've discovered since publishing the book, uh, unintentionally, candidly, is that these Torah themes resonate outside of the Jewish world as well. I've, uh, I've been invited to speak at Georgetown, which is a Catholic university. I've spoken in front of Christian audiences and the Heritage Foundation and Jewish audiences. Just this morning, I got a, a note from a friend in Silicon Valley, a guy I know, who says he's put together a group of Jewish uh, general partners, meaning that they invest in venture capital and or invested in venture capital funds, and they're looking for Jewish content. Hmm. When I come talk, and I, I think, I think the Torah has what to say, and I, th- I think it's needed, and there's a thirst for it, and we we don't need to be bashful about it. But what we've lacked is an interpretive lens that takes ancient texts 
and says that Hamachlif Parabachamor, you trade a cow for a donkey, you know, how does that apply to a semiconductor and a piece of software and an internet transaction? And I think that, you know, that's um, somewhat inadvertently what I think the, the books and the, the talks have been doing. Yeah, and I, I'll just add one more piece before we transition really to the actual Parsha, which is that in a world that we're living in, which on one hand has more and more subdivisions, meaning whether that's in the population or it's the separation sometimes that doesn't feel natural between our professional life or our home life, or we sort of, even in medicine, we see, you know, the specialty and the subspecialty that ultimately most of us are looking to feel integrated and most of us are looking to feel that there's something organic. And I think that what, what you're, what I'm hearing from you and what I see in your work is that it's an attempt to integrate and make these disparate parts of ourselves and say, they're not disparate. They're connected in an integral fashion and that's something that i think people are are thirsting for because ultimately we don't want to feel like we're many parts just sort of coming together at the end of the day we want to feel that we're we're a whole throughout our whole day when i uh, i did an interview with a russian magazine and spoken russian i, I did not <laughs> <laughs> i spoke in hebrew and they translated it to russian okay and, and the interviewer uh asked me why why do people seem to think that this is novel, the comment you, you made? And I, I blurted something out, which I didn't realize I was saying at the time, but I, in retrospect, I think is true. Only when I saw it in print, someone translated it for me, is the Torah got locked in the Beit Midrash. Mm-hmm. And I'll say it a little more radically, has been held hostage by the Beit Midrash. Mm-hmm. And the Torah to the extent that we believe it is a blueprint for a model society, which is what I believe, needs to be in society and not in the Beit Midrash. And if the people learning it and hawking its wares are not aware of real life, real society, don't interact in the marketplace, the Torah itself is negatively influenced. And... I know that will sound like a radical comment to some people, but the, the, the Torah can, can wither if it doesn't find real-life applications. And, and I think that's part of what's happened. We've, we've, we've locked it in the Beit Midrash, and we need to unleash it because it is, it is relevant. And I think the point you made about Israel is something for me, by the way, which is what initially drew me to move here. I think there were like, is like a core list of things that drew me to move here. But one of them was that organic piece. And that to me is one of the most moving things about living in this country, which is like a little bit of the, there's a little bit of a democratization also of religion. And, you know, anybody can sort of take part. You see it in the Beit Midrash even. And you know, I, I work in a woman's Beit Midrash. And just last night I came from and a performing arts evening that was inspired. And it's a very learned place that I work in, uh, not Matan, another woman's Vami Drash. And, and it was a performing arts evening where everyone expressed their, not everyone, whoever wanted to, how their winter's man has been for them and different Torah pieces, whether it was in painting or was in dance or was in music. And it's something that could be everywhere. And I wish that upon everybody, but there is something very natural about that very organic boundaryless exploration that we have here in Israel because we don't feel limited in a way I think that often we feel in the still in the diaspora. So I, that really resonates with me a lot of what you're saying. I would love us to transition into our, sure. into our Parsha. So what, what part of the Parsha are we going to explore today? We're going to talk about the Parshata Muadim, the era talking about 
the different festivals and Shabbat. There's an interesting feature in the Parshat Moadim which looks like it doesn't fit. So we think about holidays, we get dressed up, we have special food, we get together for meals, and, and smack dab right after Pesach, of course the Korbanot, um, at least then. And smack dab in the middle, uh, we get the Korbana Omer. And at first glance, it looks like a Korban. But uh, we have accounting. And not only do we have accounting, we have the mitzvot of leket shichicha and peah, of leaving a part of your field over uh, for the anim, of leaving some of your gatherings behind. Uh, mitzvot that are commonly referred to as matnot anim. Uh, I'll give a little different take on them. And I think that that parsha being there should tell us that this is not just about korbanot, and this is not just about festivals, but about the nature of the parasha and of the festivals themselves. And my read on it is, is that each of the holidays, the festivals, is part of an economic calendar. It's part of an economic cycle. Uh, briefly, uh, the Korbana Omer sets up a start date for fair competition in the grain market, right? Barley and, the, and then wheat. There's no pre-market buying and selling of the of the wheat. You've, everyone's got to wait. So there's fair competition for kind of enough to be harvested. And that's kind of, you know, the opening salvo that the market is is now open. And and that's you're explaining the Isur Chadash? That is the Isur Chadash. Isur Chadash. Yeah. Why, why can't you eat the new wheat before the 16th, Be'etzim Hayom Azeh, in the middle in the middle of that day? And the, the part about Leket Shechan Peah and the, and the Anim tells us that part of creating a productive market is to empower the other people. We, we tend to have a view of Leket Shechan Peah that they are tzedakah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's because of, we grew up speaking English, we think of it in the Christian terms of alms for the poor. It's not. Uh, Peah, just to use an example, I leave a corner of my field. I don't, I can't give the anim, the poor people, the food. They actually need to come and work. They come to the field and they work and they watch how the harvesters harvest and they learn a skill by harvesting alongside and they are forced or encouraged to work to earn their keep. And the same thing is true for for Leket. They have to follow the harvesters in the field. We learn this from Migilat Rut, right? We're in Migilat Rut. Uh, Ruth comes and follows Alakata, right? What's she doing? She, and she looks like a regular worker in the field. Boaz notices that he hasn't seen her before. And that's the point. We want to give them dignity back to do this, but also teach them a skill. It's today, if you use a modern example, like a factory deciding that it's going to take on three extra workers uh, off of unemployment and train them so there's extra slack in the system and, and people learn that. And I think that should inform all of our take on all the holidays from Pesach to Shavuot and Sukkot, they're obviously agricultural, but each of them talks about a different part of the economic economic cycle. And I know you wanted to move us to Sukkot or, or, or the Arba Taminim. Uh, but I'm, you, I'm but, moving with you. Oh, you're moving with me. But, but each <laughs> one is part of the economic uh, cycle and an important part of the economy of Eretz Yisrael. So you know, I'll skip to Sukkot because I think it's, we can talk about an important personality who I didn't know existed, a man named Dr. Arthur Schaefer, who I've since connected with which is a nice part of the story. 
So uh, I was actually learning uh, Bavli and Yerushalmi one Sukkot, particularly around uh, what are kosher hadasim, and also reading the Gemarot on the mitzvah of etrog. And we all grow up, because we went to Jewish day school, on a lot of midrashim. And they tell really nice stories and make us feel really good. You know, it's the different kinds of people in Am Yisrael, the Arba Taminim, and uh, one is the heart, and the other is the spine, and one is the eyes. One of the small and doesn't have a taste. And A nice message of achdut, of, yeah, uh, nice of messages, unity. Exactly, nice messages of of achdut. Which is a nice way of finding meaning in one of the oddest mitzvot that we, that we, that we fulfill in the entire year. I'm so glad you said that. I, I felt <laughs> the same way for years. And my kids still look at it, by the way. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and they say, it, it is strange to walk around with a palm frond. Yeah. You know, I mean, and also after having two very intense holidays where all you're doing is praying, there's nothing tangible, right? I mean, of course, there's meaning and many explanations that we both know that we won't bring up now, but... It's, it's very odd. It's it's a very odd moment in our year. It is a very odd moment in our year. Someone looking from the outside would scratch their head, uh, no doubt. But I think the reason I skipped there is I think it informs everything else, which is, to us, it's odd. To the ancient farmer who lived in Am Yisrael, it's actually super obvious. And I'll, I'll open by saying it would be the equivalent today of taking, in Israel, a drip irrigation pipe, a semiconductor, <laughs> cybersecurity software, and pick your next economic innovation uh, out of Israel. That's what you would carry if you were inventing this mitzvah today. And Sukkot is the end of the harvest cycle and the beginning of the rainy season. And as I began to explore this, uh, I actually wrote, wrote the piece first, and then somebody came to me and said, you know, Arthur Schaefer, Dr. Arthur Schaefer has a different take on that, that he wrote an article when he was a professor at Rutgers or a student at Rutgers like 40 years ago. Dr. Arthur Schaefer writes a very, very correct and reasonable interpretation that the, the four species represent the four geographic areas of Israel. The Lulav comes from Yerichon and that area, and uh, the Aravot come from Manachal, and the Etrog comes from the Sharon uh, mm-hmm. area, and the Hadassim come from the north. And so this is also a message of unity, by the way, where people bring yeah. the species of all different places. They bring them to the Beit HaMikdash, to the temple. And it also fits with the fact that we point ag- in different directions. Aggregate them together. Them. Maybe also different directions, yes. Um, and, and I thought that was a stunning explanation. My own take on it is a little different. And the thing that, that always uh, troubled me was why is the etrog called Hadar? And you read kind of the explanations in Chazal, Darmi, Lenomi, Shana, Lashana, last on the tree, um, Le'iadure, taken from the word hydro in, in Greek, and we can go uh, on and on, and people spend a lot of money on the etrog uh, because you have to do Hadar, and it never sat well with me, and, I, and, and it bothered me. So my own interpretation comes from what are the four sources of water that every farmer needs uh, to grow. So the lulav grows on underground aquifer water. That's why they grow in Yericho area, even though there's a desert, it comes from the underwater aquifers. And the aravot, that's obvious, arvei nachal, they grow from the brooks and streams. And the hadasim grow from rain. They get rained on in the hills. And the etrog, as the Gemara says, liyadure, uh, needs human the human being, to water it. Mm. He brings over the water to it. 
And I think that's why the etrog is the most important of the species. Although without each of them, you can't have it because we can't have an economy without all those kinds of water. There can't be an agricultural economy. In the case of the etrog, because it has human involvement, it becomes hadar. Like the Pasuk says about uh, Yosef, Bechor Shoro Hadar Lo Vekarnei Re'em Karnav. When you graft something, uh, when you put something together and make it better than its original organic birth, it becomes better. And that's the human being's part of this world, is to take God's world and make it better. Like the famous story of Rabbi Akiva and Tornus Rufus, what's better, wheat or bread, a human being born as is or one who is circumcised. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the etrog is, is better. But all of this comes to an economic reality, which is on Sukkot, the Jew, the Israelite, comes to the Beit HaMikdash and says, thank you for the four sources of war, the four drivers of economic prosperity. And Ana Hashem Oshiana, please save us next year so that we have this economic prosperity. And that informs my view of all of the Chagim. You know, as you're describing that, the four different kinds of water sources, I think also the message for the non-farmer <laughs> as i am as i'm thinking about people's people's neediness meaning you have the the, the a plant that is dependent on a nachal right on a ravine is a needy plant they need a constant source of water and uh and obviously a, an arava which you know can grow things that can grow without um without a constant water source or so sort of these very independent kind of plants you know i'm thinking also of the plants that have survived and not survived in my house depending on what kind of need they had uh and i think also when we hold them as as humans we think about our our needs or how much do we need to be dependent if we take the metaphor to torah right those who need constant you know constant uh fuses you know those who need constant um interaction versus those who need less or they can go on less and, you know, like a camel, they can last for longer with their water. Uh, and so these, uh, on a metaphoric level, these, you know, four different kinds of of plants also relate to natures of the individual, but not just don't have a spine, don't have a smell, right? But meaning how, how much water they need also, you know, reflects on how needy they are as a creature in this world. And of course, that obviously has resonance with humans as well. So that sort of throws me into that line of thinking. This doesn't appeal to the brisker in me, what I'm going to say right now, but but I'll say it anyway. At the end of the day, we all practice our mitzvot differently. It's Mm -hmm. just human nature. We all do a lot of things differently. We're all all different. Mm -hmm. And so I think to the point you made, we all infuse our tefillah and we all infuse our kiyum mitzvot, but particular things like the Arbat Taminim with where we are at that point in time. Uh, And each of us brings our own lens to it. And, uh, you know, I I think that's a unique observation about the human soul as it gets to Ana Hashem Oshiana, mm-hmm. which I think is not an accident that we take the Arba Taminim then. By the way, we don't shake them in Ana Hashem Atzlichana, which is also interesting. Mm. You're saying because the Hatzlicha or the success is something that we're subsequently more responsible for? I think you could read it two ways. I think that's definitely one way to read it, is that you know God looks at us and says, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And I think the other part is, it's trying to convey what I think you described which is every human being needs to believe that he can be saved from his predicament and that there is a force out there, Hashem, who can help us get out of it. And then God looks back at us and says, what are you doing? I don't Hashem to help us, but there's an expectation that, that you can do this. And I think there's something deeply important around the religious optimistic mindset that I can get out of this. 
that propels people forward. And I think that's true economically, and I think that's true personally, and I think that's true psychologically, and I think it's true religiously. As we wind down our conversation, I guess I wanted to end with two sort of more personal questions. Uh, one of them is my bug as someone who also likes to write or mostly wishes that she had more time to write, which is in among your obviously very busy life that has sort of different expressions to it and a lot of creativity uh, on the economic side. When do you find time to do your writing or that kind of creative space that you need? When does that happen for you? The creative space happens on Shabbat in a very meaningful way, but also through talking to people. I learn by talking to people uh, and then obviously reading and learning. But on Shabbat, like ideas percolate, I find. But my writing, my wife likes to say, I get up, I, I, I get up very early, irrespective of this. But my wife likes to say. Can I ask what time that is? In the fives. Okay. Yeah. With or without an alarm clock. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's something starting to feel my age and <laughs> <laughs> my wife says that it's the only time of day I can find where no one's calling me. Yeah. And so I can sit down and, and write. So that's when I do like writing. Uh, when I have to respond to editors comments, sometimes that's early in the morning, but sometimes I find 15 minutes in a day. I lock myself down and hardcore focus and respond to editor comments. That's what's been going on with the end of this book of Bumbid bar now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that something I had to solve yesterday at five o'clock. I went to a side room and solved it with the editor. Got it. You know, it's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast uh, from the Ezra Klein show, and it was a podcast about attention, which I have to say was one of the most redemptive 40 minutes of listening that I've done in a long time, um, because he spoke about different forms of attention, how we tend to sort of think about our world as just utterly decimating our attention span, which it does in many ways. But he said something there that was very meaningful for me about that we what we've most lost, forget about the the smartphone. What we've lost most is the dead time that we used to have, right? Because we constantly are using because we're constantly using our brains and we're constantly engaging ourselves with something, reading, looking, that, you know, I know for me, like you explained right now, you have, you know, you're saying on Shabbat. So my stage of life, Shabbat is, is far less, uh, is far less peaceful. But when I go on a run, for example, I'll purposely not listen to anything because all of a sudden when you let your mind wander, we've lost like mind wandering space. And instead of looking at it, I've really changed my perspective. I don't look at it as wasted time anymore when I have that ability. It's mind wandering or taking a break is unbelievably fruitful. It's when our mind can actually be creative and sort of come up with these new, connections so i relate to that maybe at different times of our week but i relate to that very much totally you need white space uh, people joke about me that i do my most creative thinking by skiing it's my one hobby amazing and uh, i can get real clarity on the mountain and kind of get ideas down to their core it's totally. the place I, I need to go to kind of figure things out totally yeah love that uh, I guess the last question I'll ask you is uh, if you have a book recommendation, other than reading yours, of course, which we will, uh, and we'll put those in the show notes, but uh, a book that has been particularly um, particularly moving or or given you direction in, in your Torah explorations. 
if you ask specifically about Torah explorations, the, the single most impactful book uh, that I've read from a Torah perspective is is definitely The Lonely Man of Faith mm-hmm. and, and the Isha Lacha, those two books. Of Rav Soloveitchik. Of Rav Soloveitchik. If that's the... Spoken uh, like a true student of Gashetzian. Yeah. If, that, <laughs> if, that's, if that's the... If it's the Torah question, and, I'm, and as a perush goes, I'm very, very influenced by the perush of the Ibn Ezra and the Abarbanel on Torah, because I think more than anyone, they show how life circumstances impact your view of the texts that you read. Uh, the Abarbanel, if you read his introduction to Sefer Dvarim, or his loathing of kingship and monarchy, uh, Ibn Ezra sees everything through a pauper's lens. I th- and I think that's true of everyone, whether you see Rav Hirsch in kind of the context of mm-hmm. the emergence of Reform Judaism, et cetera. I think, I think context is, is how we all see Torah. But I'll also give you two English books. Mm-hmm. There, there's a book written by a sports writer named David Epstein called Range, uh, which, you know, if you found redemption in, in, in Ezra Klein's podcast about white space and free thinking, uh, I've always, it's always bothered me that I'm an expert on absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And Epstein kind of made me feel a little better about myself. That I, that <laughs> you I, have a broad range. Yeah, I have a range. I don't know too much about too many things, but uh, but but I know a little bit about a, a lot of different areas. And and that was that was helpful to me. And I don't have I don't have any advanced degrees, or certainly not smicha. And uh, that was that was helpful to me. And then the other book, there's a book by Matt Ridley uh, called The Rational Optimist. And I think in an era where there's a lot of pessimistic people out there right now, and and the the voices, the doom scrolling, we even have a term for it on social media, and you know the world's coming out from climate change, and people stop and have children because of climate change. And another person told me that at dinner two nights ago. We have an optimistic view of the world, and there are other people with optimistic views of the world. And even if you're rational, which I consider myself to be, yeah. Uh, there are also rational people like Matt Ridley who have an optimistic view of the world. And you need that. And the world needs that. And that's what leads our world forward. And I think the Torah is a paragon of optimism. All of these things um, where Hashem got angry and destroyed it, they all have a salvation at the end of them. It's to tell you that there are ups and downs. And yes, there are tough times, really tough times. But ultimately, the Torah has an optimistic view of humanity and of the future of the world. And and it's important to keep that in mind. And when people tell it to you in a religious context, you say, oh, of course, it's a religious context. But when a guy like Matt Ridley, who's written a book now on COVID called Viral, and wrote a book called How Innovation Works, says it, I think it helps us stand up and take notice. Michael, thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Yosef. This was a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.